Right, so welcome to a Christmas special of That Blind Ass Podcast. Uh, this is a very special one to me and one I enjoy doing very much. Um, it's with the former lead singer of the band The Enemy. Um, he's a great bloke to speak to, has some decent stories to tell and is just generally a great laugh and a great person to spend a good chunk of time with and I've got massive respect for him because we, we did the first recording and half of it kind of messed up a bit or quite a lot actually and um, yeah I had to redo the recording again earlier this week and yeah I've got a bit of respect for him he took out his, his time to to make sure this was complete for me for the first hour or so the audio's uh, slightly delayed a tiny bit literally a tiny bit um, you might pick up you might not but once the hour's gone um, it just goes back to normal so um, you can still follow and understand the conversation so stick around I hope you enjoy this is a Christmas special so yeah Merry Christmas hope you've had a good Christmas and a good Boxing Day um, and if you are new here then be sure to check out my other uh, series that I do which is The Blind Social Not Quite Page Free and Journeys they are all on my podcast feed so if you go there have a look and see which ones float your boat um, if you, and if you are and if you like the stuff you hear and want to hear more be sure to subscribe or follow so you're notified when uh, my next episode goes live I'll be having another New Year's special come out this time next weekend so stay tuned for that and uh, yeah let's get straight into the podcast Hello and welcome to That Blind Eyes podcast. Today um, is a very special episode. Um, I have the former lead singer of the band known as The Enemy um, with uh, hits like We're Living Dinies Towns Away From Here. Uh, also, the We're Living Dinies Towns album was straight to number one back in 2006. And that is Tom Clark. Tom, how are you, mate? Very well, thank you. Uh, thank, and thank you for coming on my podcast. It's so massively appreciated. Absolute pleasure. So, what I'd like to do with most people that come on the podcast is pretty much go to the beginning um, and where it all began for you as a young Tom Clark. Uh, well, I was born. Uh, I don't really remember that bit. Um, <laughs> but uh, I sort of um, started playing music when I was about four and um, just sort of, sort of, I think I had violin lessons and started self teaching myself piano. Um, played in some school orchestras and then got to about 16, decided guitars were cooler than violins. Uh, not sure I still agree with that, but um, <laughs> yeah, sort of got into bands and ended up playing with uh, Liam Watts in a band at, at sort of college doing A-level music, which we both failed. Um, wow. And then <laughs> Andy joined the band and... Uh, and I started writing the enemy stuff because we've been doing sort of blues stuff up until then. And yeah, and then we started writing the, the enemy stuff and uh, Warner Brothers and some of the record labels liked it. Um, we got signed and they put their sort of big music industry machine behind it. And it, it did what it did. I think everyone else. The rest is history. Else, yeah, knows the rest. Yeah. So was it, was it probably just you that got got yourself into music or was that? like encouraged by people in your family or um there was a piano at my grandma's house um we used to visit every week and i'd just sort of sit at it figuring out as a four-year-old this is yeah what what notes sounded good with each other okay. um, 
and without understanding the theory of it at that point, you know, worked out majors and minors and different, you know, different inversions. And I didn't know what any of it was called. I just knew what what nah. sounded nice to a, a four-year-old's ears. <laughs> um, and then I started getting violin lessons when I was four and started also studying music theory. Um, did that until I was probably a teenager. I got to grade six on violin and I think the same with music theory and started to understand, you know, what it was that yeah. made music work. Um, but then to be quite honest with you, most of the, the sort of the basic roles of music theory in recent years, the struggle has been learning to throw it out and have confidence in doing the, the unusual, you know, which mm. is kind of jazz and a, and a, a lot of, a lot of sort of more technical music does that anyway, or, or it probably, it can probably explain it away with some, you know, with some really advanced theory. But uh, yeah. for years, it was kind of, I viewed music as, well, these are the basic rules, the parameters that make people's ears happy, and you make music like that. And the older I've gotten, the more I like to challenge that and, and push it and say, well, what if we didn't follow those rules and, you know, is, is that because you've kind of you've you've been there, you know, you've had your number ones and all that kind of stuff. So you feel like now you've got more of a a, a space to kind of see what you're capable of and what people like. Yeah, I, I think it's a case of trying to avoid boredom because I've I've written away from here. I've written, you know, when on the second record when I wrote "Be Somebody," that was kind of. I mean, that, people love that song, and I love that song, and the Nigel record wouldn't exist without it. Mm. Um, but it, it was that was as a response to the record label saying, can you write one that's a bit like Had Enough? And, and we go, well, yeah, I, I can repeat that if you want, and did that. And then the third record, there was a lot of that, you know, of, okay, let's write within the parameters that people, the record label and, and the public are, are comfortable with. Yeah. But the problem is, is that to make a truly good album, a lot of what makes albums awesome is excitement and and the person writing it needs to be excited and you, mm. it, it comes through and people can sense it. You can't hear it. You can't tangibly say that's the bit where I can hear the excitement, but yeah. it just, it carries over. And so if you're writing and you're not excited about it because you feel like you're covering old ground, it doesn't translate well to, to fans and music listeners because it doesn't sound exciting because you weren't excited when you wrote it. So, for me, the pushing the boundaries is to keep myself excited and, and interested so that yeah. what comes out the other end is exciting to the listener. And would you say that, you, that now you're kind of you're getting more of you in your music, like you're getting more of your character, your, how, your, your actual feelings and expressing yourself even more so now than 10 years ago? Well, sort of. It's more me now because me 10 years ago or whenever we'll live and die in these towns was that was me then you know that was all of yeah, me then sure yeah um it's just that everything after that is me after that and so you know I've, i'm interested in musical approaches now that i had no interest in then that you know some of which i wasn't even aware of then that if i'd have you know if someone had put them in front of me and said i'll oh, pursue this it, it would have sounded disingenuous because what i wanted to do <laughs> Uh, you know, as a, as a 20 year old was these three chord short, no middle eight, massive chorus, 
effectively pop songs, but played with loud guitars and shouty vocals. And yeah, I, you know, that's what was driving me then, and and that's what excited me then. So I don't know if it's any more me the stuff I'm making now, or if it's just more me now, if that makes sense. Yeah. So it's like I suppose like a lot of things in it as you get older, your your tastes in particular things, in this case, music develops and. Obviously, not many people, you know, some people might like jazz when they're in their 40s, but obviously not going to like it, or most people don't like it when they're in their teens, for example. So it's, it's just you, your music is following you developing as a human, basically. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's the same with everything that you enjoy, isn't it? Food and yeah. drinks. It's, if you started off as a an 18-year-old drinking single malt neat whiskey, you, yeah. you'd blow your head off and you probably <laughs> wouldn't understand it. But... Yeah. When you've, you know, as you gradually get through booze and you've had enough bad nights on all of it, you end up going, do you know what? I'd really like a nice, quite expensive <laughs> glass of wine. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> is, that, is that speaking from experience? Is that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so was, was music always your, like, was that it for you when you was a kid? Did you just kind of see it was either music or nothing? Or was it like just there? Uh, it's always competed with cars. Um, I've always been fascinated by mechanical stuff, but, um, but yeah, it, it's what music did. I'd say I was equally interested in music and cars, but what music did that, that mechanical and engineering stuff didn't do was allowed me to vent and process emotions. Mm. And it, you know, it's been a, a coping mechanism many times in my life and, and a form of expression that yeah that I you know I, I don't get anywhere else. I think a lot of artists could probably echo that. Good news, it's, it's you know it's, you can put you can put what how you're feeling there and then on a piece of paper, and then create art pretty much. And yeah, it, it obviously allowed them people like myself and thousands of others to enjoy it. So you know. I think most artists in one way or another are nuts and <laughs> we, we struggle to emotionally process what everyone else takes for granted that they can emotionally process. And our warped way of dealing with it is to turn it into sounds. Mm. And, you know, certainly for me, that's, that's why I've always stuck with it because either, and I think everyone to experiences the first part, which is everyone's been in a dark place where a song has helped them through it. Yeah. But, for me, sometimes I'll be in a place so dark that there isn't a song that exists to help me through it, and so I have to create one. Mm. So, obviously, you moved. You, you was born in Birmingham. That's correct, isn't it? And you moved over yeah. to to the great city of Coventry. Uh, was it early teens? What was was that like? Yeah, I was, I was about sixteen. Sixteen. So that that so that wasn't long before you obviously came into contact with. Andy and and Liam and so how did how did that how did that kind of just did that naturally merge together you three and then lead into John Dawkins or was it like a just some it was four together. So we me Liam and Andy all met at music college, mm. um, and uh, I, I sort of I, I made friends with Andy straight away, but I didn't play with him musically straight away. He was in another band. Mm. Um, I did play with Liam straight away and Liam's the whole reason I ended up singing because he was just such a good drummer and there were no singers about. I, I realised, you know, he, he needed a, a singer. Yeah. and Well, we needed a singer and 
so that became me and and then Andy sort of joined us later on um and we did these few sort of we wrote we wrote some songs I had this idea that I was just gonna stop playing this sort of really technical blues stuff with very few lyrics and I was actually gonna write some songs with more vocals basically and find more confidence in in my singing and so we did that and they were the first enemy songs and um Liam Liam sat next to John Dawkins' mum and basically got some demos to um to him that way and he worked for a, a company at the time who managed bands and yeah and it got to them that way and they put it in the hands of Warners and then Warner Brothers came down to Cov and and uh, and sort of watched one set and said they wanted to sign us. As it was that obviously when you first got together, obviously I'm guessing that wasn't ever in your mind that you know it would lead to that. So was it more just like a you guys seeing it as just a hobby and something you enjoyed to begin with? Yeah, it was a release from just the the nine to five grind. It was. Yeah. Tuesday nights, we'd get together and go and vent a load of energy in a rehearsal room, and I'd emotionally process a lot of stuff <laughs> by writing songs. And uh, you know, and the enemy was the result. And um, and yet, I don't think I I didn't expect to get signed. No. I didn't think that music would ever be anything more than that. Um, but that that was enough. You know, it was doing what we wanted, and then record labels started turning up and I realised, oh, okay, there's the possibility that this is serious. But I'm also a, a deeply sceptical and mistrusting person. <laughs> and so I I didn't really, you know, even at the time when Warners <clears throat> were saying we want to sign you, I was thinking, do you? What does that mean? Yeah, yeah. Are we, you know, is that, is this worth giving up my job for? Or And, and so we didn't. We we went out um, playing gigs that the label and management were arranging but we still all had our jobs and it was only when I used up all my time off and, you know, a gig was booked and, and I said, well, I, I can't do it because I've not got any more days off that they said, well, you better quit your job then. <laughs> and, you know, there was a huge record deal on the table, but it, it, it had taken me a long time to get that job and I felt very yeah. lucky to have it. The, the, the recession hadn't started yet. We're still two years before the recession, but in the Midlands and the North, the, the recession was already beginning you know there was already a shortage of jobs and times were tough it just it wasn't in the media yet mm. and, and london didn't know it yet yeah but um but yeah it, you know I, I really didn't want to quit my job because I, I kind of thought well what is this is this some flash in the pan is it a scam or <laughs> you know what's going on here but then you know it got to that point i quit my job worked my notice and and then we became a, a proper touring band and mm. and it would you know, we'd released uh, 40 Days and It's Not Okay on Stiff Records and done limited copies of like a 1,000 each. And and that's one thing, you know, selling a 1,000 copies of anything is amazing. Yeah. And I mean, nowadays, that would be huge numbers, but back then that was quite small. And, and uh, you know, then it, it sort of it really kicked off. I was in a premiere in, we'd just done a gig, woke up one morning and s- someone phoned and said, um, away from me has just gone to number eight. Had <laughs> straight in the morning. Weird. Yeah, it was it, it was really weird because it was just kind of okay. I mean, you guys have been saying that this is going to do well, but 
I, I don't know as I really believed it until it happened, and then it's like, oh right, okay, so we're a top ten band now. Yeah. <laughs> was it was it quite that that transition from just general touring to then having a top ten single? Was that quite a fast you know change? Yeah, it it all happened really fast, and it, it I I don't think I ever really adjusted to it because it what obviously came with it. The thing that I think lots of people do it for was a byproduct for me that I hadn't really thought about and hadn't really thought about the implications of, which was fame. Mm. Because overnight, we couldn't go anywhere without people knowing who we were. Yeah. Some people were wanting photos, and you know, and, and other people wanting to fight. <laughs> and it, it just it got really weird really quickly, and I I never really, I mean, I've adjusted to it, but I've never learned to love the fame bit i just it's for me the making music i absolutely love the playing music live and watching a a room of people go nuts and knowing that it means as much to them as it does Mm. to me that i love the the fame bit that i think is the reason a lot of people get in for it get into it i I wish i could have the previous two without that bit Mm doesn't really work that way. <laughs> so how old was you? Was you been 20, 21, was it? When that? Well, yeah, probably we're 20 or 21. So um, what was it that, obviously you say you, you had your United Five job and that, was there anything that you'd say kind of flicked that switch and made you thought, yeah, let's, let's just, just go for it and see what happens? Um, well, yeah, so we, we used to go out drinking every night and just to the local yeah. pub. And it was a night where I was off the booze. I was the the designated <laughs> driver home for the night. <clears throat> um, I had a a Volvo that I'd bought for fifty quid, which was a cracking car. Got written off. So. Yeah. Um, but I sort of drove everyone home, and then thought, I don't, I don't want to go home because I know what happens. I go home, I go to sleep, I wake up, I go to work. Yeah, and. Something just sort of made me go. Uh, something made me go. I'm just going to drive, and I ended up on the motorway, just driving north. I, as I'm telling this, <laughs> it just occurred to me then that there's a bit of me that that inside them. I just went. Oh, I hope my boss doesn't hear this because I'll be. <laughs> <But> I, <laughs> I basically started driving north. Ended up in Scotland. Quite and, north. Um, <laughs> Very north, about as north as you can get without getting wet. And um, and I was sort of sat on the bonnet of my car as the sun came up, looking at some mountains, going, everything back there, as important as it seems, as important as it seems that you wake up and go to work, mm. is actually when you gain just that little bit of perspective, you know, six hours perspective, yeah. is actually quite small. And... The things that seem set in stone, you know, your destiny that that seems preordained is actually not. You can you can start moving in a direction, and within six hours, be in a totally different place. And I sort of phoned in sick. Um, sorry, Yvonne, that's my boss. Um, <laughs> and drove back down. Just about made it home. Didn't really have any money in my account for fuel, so like made it home with a as the fuel light came on and uh phoned liam and said 
I just got back from Scotland and he said, you're mental. <laughs> this, this is all within like 12 hours of you dropping them off at home after the pub and that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, I said, I, I just got back from Scotland. I'm going to write some songs that, that are different. And it's kind of like, all right. And then a few days later, I went to the pub with Liam and Andy and explained my plan, which was initially I said there's a there's a dance song called It's Time to Burn by an artist called Storm. And um, I said, it's just three notes over and over and over again. But I think if you put a, a top line over that and you play it as indie, not as electronic music, I think it could sound really cool. And that was technodancephobic. That's how that came about. And then immediately after that, I wrote 40 Days and 40 Nights. And then I think probably the next week on our way to the rehearsal room, in Andy's car without an instrument, just tapping on on my knees and, and like, just sort of, like, singing it in the car, wrote Away From Here. And it's, you know, Away From Here, I think, really was all of the emotions of that drive up to Scotland and back. Just sort of having been floating around and me finally processing them and and sort of the beginning of moving in that that direction of let's make some songs and and see if it does anything. But if nothing else, it was a way of venting emotions. Yeah. And that, that was kind of the beginning for you of writing that, that first album, We'll Live and Die in These Towns. Yeah. So, so what was what was that whole, obviously from then on, you kind of got that boost, I suppose you could call it, of wanting to create this, this well, do this project, I just call it. What was, what was that like for you, like the whole journey and for you and Andy and Liam and everyone else? Um, brilliant and difficult. It was, um, I, it's something that I look back on and I don't know whether I would do everything exactly the same or whether I'd do everything completely differently. I can't decide because Lots of mistakes were made, but also lots of good music was made, and and some not so good music was made, <laughs> and good times were had, mm. but there were bad times and dark times as well. And you know, I I think um, I I don't it was it was mixed. You yeah. know, the the start was great. But at the same time, you don't realise it's, it's really exciting at the start because all of a sudden you're playing bigger and bigger gigs and, yeah. you know, you're selling records and people know your music and they like it. And and it's super exciting. And the first two years, I don't think we went home. We just toured and toured and toured. Mm. And then you kind of, you know, the, the second record wasn't the same because... The record label basically said, you know, you've got a month or whatever it was, two months to to come up with a record from nothing. And the first record, I'd probably written quicker than that. Uh, there was, you know, there was so much emotional processing and therefore songwriting going yeah. on. I think I wrote like thirty songs in a couple <laughs> of months. And for the second record, because someone had told me go into that room and write music and make sure it's good enough that we can sell it and make money out. Yeah. Something didn't feel right. Wasn't natural and enough. So, 
Yeah, exactly. It was it, it was it wasn't just about processing emotions anymore. It was processing emotions, but with one eye on radio playlisting and another on record sales. And it it wasn't for the want of a less wanky word. It wasn't art yeah. anymore. I was making a product. Yeah. Um. And it it just didn't feel right. And and the, the third record. You know, that's why we took some time off after that second record because I was really wrestling with, well, what what am I doing this for now? Is this has this turned into my job, and is it actually the same as the job that I had before? It, you know, it, it's obviously it looks very different, but am I still basically just working for a massive company and you know doing what they tell me? And okay, I'm not <laughs> I'm not bestowing the merits of flat screen televisions on people anymore, but I'm you know, I'm still shifting a product for a big, a big company. Yeah. And, and, and if so, if that is the case, then what, what do I do now to process my emotions? Cause that's been taken away from me. And so we, we took a bit of time away and then that third record was, you know, we, we sort of, we had commitments and it, it was okay. We've got to make a third record. And it was, very much an, an album made to order you know it was here's the landscape at the moment you need to make a straight down the, the line guitar album no messing about no room for artistic exploration or expression and i you know i really there's some good moments on that record you know and i know people love saturday and 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 like a dancer's quite popular off it as well but i don't i don't like any of that record because it was almost made under duress and so I don't really like playing stuff off of it because I feel like it was a, that record was made to put food on mm. the table. And, and that's not why you should be making art in my opinion. It, it's nice that we can. Um, I, I appreciate that I can. Um, and it's actually a, a great privilege to be able to put food on the day, the table doing something that you love. But if you're under too much duress, the problem is, is that you don't love it and you may as well be doing anything. You might as well be, you know, working for Amazon or or, or some other huge company because they're all the same at a corporate level, whether it's you know a record label or or, or any yeah. other huge company. So after that, you know, then the the fourth record. To be quite honest with you, the fourth record was a conversation between us all where I said, "I don't think this will work. I'd like, but I'd like to make a record." where we are allowed a little bit more artistic expression and people around me were saying it will work. It will work. We'll get radio play. We'll get this. We'll get that. And again, I was deeply skeptical and, and mistrusting of it, but went along with it and kind of said to everyone, all right, if it works, then that's cool. I'll basically, I kind of said, I'll be a good boy. I'll play your games. I'll do all yeah. the interviews. I'll make the best record I can, but my gut's telling me that it's over. And, um, and we made the record, and I'm very proud of that fourth record. I know it, it's not a record that everybody likes in terms of enemy fans, but it's a record that a lot of people who weren't enemy fans did like as well. And there's, you know, there's a crossover. There are enemy fans that like it just as much as, as the first. But for me, it was a brave record, and it was a well-executed record. And the, the only other thing I can say that about really was the first. And so, it, you know, it's the only other enemy record that I hold in the same regard as the first even though it was nowhere near as popular and it didn't get mm. chart success. And, you know, the, the time for guitars on radio was really over at that point. So, you know, I, I knew it wasn't going to be 
the 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 blinding sort of success that the first record was because the the thing about that first record is you had all the people who were still enemy fans and still come to all the shows <laughs> and then you had loads of people who just listen to Radio 1, aren't actually really music fans, but it's just yeah. where they work all day. And they heard it so much that they went, oh, yeah, I'm into that, I'll buy it. Whereas they never, you know, they wouldn't have bought bought it otherwise. And so, you know, I think it's, um, I, th- I think the fourth record did exactly what it needed to do, but it also proved to us that even if you make a record that's extremely well executed, that you're happy with the songwriting on, that has got artistic expression and exploration on it, that it, it doesn't guarantee you chart success, that everyone is at the mercy of radio playlisting and, and the editorial directive of the media and radio at the time, and that you can just mm. be out of fashion. So would you say, obviously going back to when you said you're making your second and your third, would you say you almost just fell out of love with making music or was it just something you kind of just had to refine up rediscover that that drive that motivation part of it was that I fell out of love part of it was that all of a sudden there were lots of people around me telling me Mm. how to do it and the thing is is not one of them has ever written a top 10 record (laughs) and so you know I've got these people going yeah you need to do this you need to do that and then record label coming in saying, oh, could you make it a bit more like this? Could you be-? And it's like, how how do you guys know? And if you do know how to do this, yeah. why haven't you done it yourself? You know, why are you on a... What, what, what qualifies you to tell me? And even on the first record, to an extent, I remember someone coming in and saying to me, can we make the vocal performance on You're Not Alone a little bit less abrasive? And me saying, well, you can, but it's about the loss of 3,000 jobs in the manufacturing industry in Coventry, and that feels yeah. pretty fucking abrasive <laughs> you know, like to, the, to the community it's happening in. So I kind of feel like the vocal performance <laughs> should be fairly abrasive. And, yeah, I just, there was this constant sort of too many yeah. cooks situation. Would you say that, that the industry, you know, the record companies or whatever, they, they didn't, they almost took the meaning out of, yeah, the lyrics and the song itself. I just wanted to make it as, I don't know if it's the right word, but as commercial as, as possible. And whereas you, obviously, you're the one writing it. You're, you and Andy and Liam are the ones creating it. You wanted to put emotion and meaning behind as many of the tracks as possible. Yeah. What, what you've got to understand about the music industry is that, first and foremost, yeah. it's an industry. Um, Occasionally, it produces some brilliant art. You know, occasionally it produces these fantastic, timeless records. But even when it produces art, the only time the music industry ever produces art is if, coincidentally, it can also make a lot of money out of that art. It never produces art for the sake of producing art. Its primary objective is always to make money. And... I struggled with that because that doesn't, that's not conducive to uh, an enriching artistic environment, which is how the best records happen. And the, the problem is that back in the day, they used to, you used to be able to make so much money out of music before iTunes mm-hmm. and digital music. Artists would have, you know, a few records 
and they would have made so much money that they didn't need the record label anymore. You know, they'd yeah. just start their own. Um, they'd have millions in the bank, so they'd pay for it all, and they'd bring in an orchestra if they wanted. They'd do this. And so they could they could just create art without the industry looking at it, and they could do it and make a loss if they wanted, and, and it didn't matter because they were so rich. Nowadays, artists don't make that much money. And so what you tend to get is a massive push for an artist on their first record. A record label extracts all of the money they can out of them, squeezes them dry effectively, and then goes, right, well, either you keep churning out the same product now and, and abandon you, you know, your, your, your creative artistic side, or they just move on to the next artist, which is why the music industry, certainly in Britain, but I think worldwide, for the last at least decade, if not longer, has been a constant stream of new one-album yeah. wonder artists who put something out. The media goes, this is great, and then we're on to the next thing. And, no, that's not great anymore. This, this is great now. And you don't have time for bands to develop in the way that great bands and artists used to, where you could have U2 who broke on their seventh record. That's mm. impossible now in today's industry because that there isn't the money to get an artist to their seventh record. It's, it's, it's all about longevity. Some, I think it's in a lot of industries. You, just, you, just, you don't see it. And you'll have, like, say, bands or artists, like, say, 10 years ago, and still going now, but nowhere near to the, you know, the fan base will be nowhere near the size of what it was when it first came onto the scene. I think that's that's where it kind of, you, you lose kind of the faith, I suppose, in the music industry and obviously that's all down to like you said the mute the record labels and your radio stations and everything just just wanting to churn as much new stuff as possible as as quickly as possible yeah and there's you know those artists that are still around from our time they're they're busy feeding many mouths because if they're still with a record label you know, that's, what, 50 to 100 people in an office whose salaries they're paying part of. It's a, a an entire management company that they're helping to prop up. There's an agent in there somewhere taking some money, and there's a, a promoter, you know, busy taking a lot of the profit out of their shows. And so that reduces the amount of money that they've got for creativity. You know, you get, you get these artists. I mean, I know now, having just made the Chronicles of Nigel, that as you get to the fourth or fifth record, record that you've made, you know what you're doing mm. a hell of a lot more. And so you're better at it because you're more experienced. But for, for those artists that are still with management companies and record labels and big publishers, they don't have the financial freedom to take advantage of that experience because they're basically yeah. feeding all the mouths. And, you know, I, I feel for them, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm glad that I'm, I'm not in that position anymore that, you know, the, it's bittersweet, but I'm glad that the ending of the band forced me to become much more independent in the way that I operate and uh, because it's allowed me creative freedoms that I know I would never have got past the record label. I, there is no way in the world, if I sat down in a boardroom of a, of a record label or a, a meeting room of a record label and said, this is the record I want to make. It's about a middle-aged bloke messing his life up. Uh, and it's a concept record. Some of it's going to sound like disco. There's going to be an accordion on it. It's yeah. weird. They would have just gone, get out, come back when you've got some more bits yeah. and bodies. You know, it's, 
and it's it's kind of why I look at the, the journey of the enemy and say, well, I don't know if I would change anything because ultimately, you know, the the life and death of the enemy, the life of the enemy was amazing. The death of the enemy has sort of enabled me to make the stuff that I'm making now, which I'm incredibly proud of and happy. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's obviously, like I said, having all those those mouths to feed, I think it sounds like there'd be a lot of pressure as well on that particular artist, you know, to deliver stuff that that makes money and you know, they might not say to you, look at all these people in this office, you've got to pay for every single one of them, but somewhere in artists these days, minds must be like, you know, shit, I've got to I've got to create something here that's that's good enough to to make all these different people happy. Yeah, exactly. And you've got the too many cooks situation because you've then got loads of people from record labels who are normally failed musicians uh, who are concerned that the musician needs to make a product that's saleable enough that it will sustain their job. Or, you know, it's, you know, if you're the A&R guy for a, an artist and you're thinking, oh God, he's making something that's not going to sell, you need to massage that into a more commercial product. It's, it, it's ruining music. It, the, and it has been for decades. It's just, it, it has been, in my opinion, since the digitalization of music, because whilst it's great that music became really cheap, <clears throat> that that's also, you know, for, for, if, you, if you're a music lover, it's wonderful that you now pay less yeah. for music because you can buy more of it. However, the quality of the music that you're buying is no longer as good because the budget that the artists have got to work with is smaller because you're paying less yeah. for it. So you know, that's, that's it really oversimplified. So what music lovers have got out of the digitalization of music is quantity because they can buy loads more music, but the quality of it is nowhere near what it was decades ago. Mm, so it's like one positive, well, taking step forward, two sets back kind of thing pretty much. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's yeah exactly. He sort of robbed Peter to pay Paul, but I think that as a as a music lover, and people might have a different opinion, but mine is I would always take quality over quantity. Yeah. I would take one really great timeless record over ten million. Yeah, I, I think I'd have to agree with that myself. To be honest, although I think also on that the whole thing around records and you know people listening to an entire record is you still have people that do it, but I think it's slowly. Um, disappearing, especially okay that you know not many people, unless you are a genuine music, you know fanatic, not many people can say, "Oh, you listen to that that record, that's amazing." People are like, "Well, I've only listened to two songs on it." If you know what I mean. Yeah, totally. I, it's a it's another thing where you know the, the record that I've just finished making really to be properly appreciated has to be listened to. In yeah. full, in order. And I think it's something people aren't used to doing. But the and and that's another reason why a major record label would have never allowed me to make this record because, you know, they they need to chop it up into seven singles that they can put on iTunes or, or whatever. Yeah. You know, it's this is a record that you're going to need to sit down with a a cup of coffee or or something and you know go on a long drive and listen to a story play out yeah. over eleven tracks. Or it's not gonna. You're not gonna get the full. I'm, I'm looking forward to. It. I'll be definitely listening to that myself. So, with I was going back to 
your first album. What what was that like? Obviously, it got to number one pretty quickly. <laughs> what was that like for you as a group and as a team? And was it just like constant euphoria and kind of you just, just almost couldn't believe it? No, it was immediately <laughs> disappointing. <laughs> we were the day it went to number one. We uh, had a, a radio session booked up in mm. Scotland. And I appreciate that, you know, radio was a big part yeah. of the success. And I appreciate that the, you know, the, the, the radio station and the DJ probably loved that we came up there on the day it went to number one. And I'm sure it was a smart move to have done that. But the reality is that as a 20 or 21-year-old, whatever we were, we spent at that point, the most important day of our lives in the back of a cold van <laughs> on the M6 motorway. Yeah, that's not, not what you want. And, you know, no, it's, um, you know, I think people imagine that that day would have been the day that the champagne corks popped and yeah. it was a huge party. It wasn't. We were, it was just M6 <laughs> North and then a travel lodge. Well, the people driving by, driving by wouldn't think, yeah, there's a band in there that's just went to number one. <laughs> Yeah, I, I mean, we didn't feel like it. You know, we didn't feel like it. Just, we, I mean, I remember we sort of looked at each other and went, yeah, all right, that's good. And, you know, it, it's kind of... I think that's probably the experience for a lot of bands because the, the amount of work to get a record to number one mm. is phenomenal. And it's quite easy to be working so hard that you can't yeah. appreciate it. You know, that it just happens and it's a great commercial success, but it... It didn't really become a a personal success until probably ten years later when it dawned on me that we'd reached a lot of people and that these songs now, even ten years on, meant a lot to a lot of people and that's really when mm. it became special. So you've obviously you played at many uh, many big arenas, stadiums, festivals. What was the the first place that? you performed at that made you actually like kind of step back and think wow it's like this is this is like actually happening kind of thing actually pinch yourself almost um i don't know because it it grew quickly but naturally there was no big jump you know it was we were in 200 cap rooms and then 500 and then 1000 and then 2000 and then 6000 and then we're playing huge festivals and then you're in you're in baseball stadiums in Japan and it it's it, but it it was never you know I think if we'd have just gone from 200 cap venues to here's a baseball stadium in Japan yeah. it felt like whoa it, it grew its way there and so it was always mm. just a little step up the gig where I remember thinking this is too big and it, it the songs don't translate at this mm. size venue was um playing the O2 with Rolling Stones. I remember going on stage and thinking, what I like to do on stage is work the room. I like to look into the whites of people's eyes. And, you know, I bounce off them and they bounce off me and we end up with this brilliant atmosphere. And I just remember thinking, you can't do that here. You know, this is the natural point of the enemy where this is too big for for it to work in the way that it works best. Um. And I actually, I think that the the sort of the, the golden size for a venue for the enemy is about 2,000 okay. capacity. I think you put 
the enemy in a room anywhere between 1,000 and 2,000 and there's this magical thing that happens and and it, it, a lot of bands I think that you know I really think the O2 academies throughout the country are probably the <clears> best <throat> venues um, because of that you know because they've got all the venues that are that size and you know even as a punter if you think you go to an O2 academy you can see the band you can hear it it sounds great because they've got really good L acoustics PAs in there, whereas smaller independent venues, as much as I love them, and you know we operate one, um, you know they haven't always got the the gear that the, the bigger academy yeah. size venues have got. But then, as a punter, even you you know you go up to the next level and you go and see a band in an arena, it, it doesn't always translate. You can find yourself with a terrible view where the sounds rubbish because it's bouncing around the metal rafters at the back and. It's you know I really think the the golden size for venues one mm. to two. Is it that that intimacy like, like you said I've been able to connect with the fans so close and like you're saying being able to bounce off each other just makes you. It's the balance, the, the balance of intimacy and also feeling like you're an army because at about two thousand cap, everyone feels like they're involved, but you also feel like there's a fucking yeah, yeah. in in one room, and. And that you're all there for the same thing, and that's this magical feeling of you know you feel like you could march them out the door <laughs> and go take over a town. But but you know you any smaller than that, and it become and I love small intimate gigs too. I love that it's just a few people, you know, a few hundred people sharing a moment and a night that will never be repeated and isn't being recorded. Mm. That's magical. But the, the the real that real feeling of we can do anything, I think, is around that one to two thousand cap. Where it's the balance of intimacy and numbers. So, what what would you say if that's the case? What would you say like performing at things like Glastonbury and and Reading and Leeds Festival? What, what's your experiences of those kind of festivals? Really <laughs> stressful because you you don't, you don't get a sound check, so you've got no idea whether it's going to sound very good or not. Um, generally speaking, outdoor festivals the, the sound is getting blown around everywhere, so. Again, you've got no idea if it sounds good to the people you're playing to, but also your sound's getting blown around on stage. So a lot of the time yeah. you can't even hear what you're playing. Um, it's a more of a sort of a, a a smash and grab type feel. You know, you rock up, you get on stage, everyone's uncomfortable, and you do your best to make sure that it translates into yeah. an okay gig for the punters. And what what is good about festivals is that occasionally it does so you can go play a load of festivals and a bunch of them will be rubbish and you you'll come off stage just going well i couldn't hear anything so i've just had a really stressful hour of you know trying to work out if i'm playing in time to liam and and they're horrible but then you can have one festival where you walk on stage and you can hear everything and you know the wind's calm and everyone out front can hear everything and you can kind of sense mm. that it sounds good out front um, you've got the whole crowd with you, and and that's magical because it's a it's against all odds yeah. situation. Then you know you you're sort of aware that this is good because certain things beyond your mm. control have aligned, and that's a really it just makes would you really would you have an good. example of of that um, a particular festival? Um, the, the there is a Glastonbury performance that went well because of that. It's on. Um, on YouTube, I can't remember what stage it was. I think it's the other stage, um, but that was one where we came out. And the thing is, you on the 
on festivals, you come out ready to do battle. You come out ready to do battle with rubbish sound, yeah. wind, potentially rain, potentially a lot of fans that aren't your own. And so you come out ready for a fight. And we do that, and you can see it in us in the way we start the set. And then we realise there is no fight. Everything's fine. Everything's perfect today. And the crowd are with us, and the weather's great, and the sound's great. And at that point, you've got all this energy that just goes into playing the gig well. And it just turns into a magical set. And so that one, that one at Glastonbury, there was one at Leeds early on um, in a tent that that one to be honest i remember <laughs> i remember going on because it was really really early days i remember going on stage to play some songs and in the set there's a lot of b-sides because it was it was that early on we hadn't even finished writing we'll live and die in these towns yeah. we just released some of the singles i remember going on stage ready to do battle and playing a few songs and the crowd just going nuts and i remember thinking on stage huh i didn't realize <laughs> we were this well known <laughs> And being sort of yeah. taken aback by it. So, so you... um, come. Yeah, and then, but there's also other, there's a, another experience in Somerset House in London, which was sort of a okay. mini festival. It was an outdoor gig. It absolutely <laughs> pissed down the whole way through it. But I've never seen a crowd go so mad. This sort of like British defiance of we're going to have it, even though we're all yeah. completely drenched. And, and that was a, another against all odds because it was like well everything hasn't aligned it sounds okay mm. but it's pretty windy it's pissing down on the fans but this magical thing has happened anyway where everyone's gone nuts and it just drove us on to play you know really really well and i, I didn't really even though we, we were getting pissed on as well just, i really didn't want to get off stage that night was, mm. that, that was an amazing would you say that obviously you, you performed you know, you've gone on european tours and whatever you would say um, British festivals are different to any other ones around the world. Yeah, I d- I've never really enjoyed playing anywhere else in the world apart from Japan, but that I mean that's very different. Um, I hated Europe because it's my. T- I know people love Europe, and I don't mind going on <laughs> holiday to certain bits of it, but. My experience of Europe was just worse food <laughs> than Britain. Miles and miles of boring countryside, and then cities where the culture was so different to Britain that they didn't understand who we were or why our music meant something to us. And so I'm singing away from here, or this song is about you, which you sing that in England and people get why that means something to you yeah. and it means something to them too. But you sing that in Paris and they, they don't get it you know there's a, a cultural disconnect and so i really hated touring europe we cut one of our europe tours short and just came <laughs> home just went nah fuck that it's um it's, 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 they don't get it likewise america you know we we tried to break america we did a couple of tours out there they just at the time they didn't get us weirdly i get a lot of messages from people in america now who retrospectively look back at it and go, ah, oh, I really love this. And I don't understand why they get it now, but they didn't back then. But again, there was just this cultural disconnect where they didn't understand what the enemy was about in a way that British people yeah. intrinsically just did. And and Japan was amazing because for whatever reason, Japan did get it. Um, and 
Japanese fans are brilliant. Some of the best gigs I've ever played. Some of the most synchronized <laughs> hand clapping and <laughs> chanting I've ever seen, and 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 just just an amazing yeah. country. What would you say? Obviously, you say it's cultural disconnect. Is it just? You think it's just purely just they just they purely just don't get it at all, and that leaves them not being able to connect with you, and you can't really do your best with a crowd that's a bit what's this kind of thing yeah I mean the music of the enemy if you if you really deconstruct it deconstruct away from here mm. it's three chords and and the chorus is two notes so if you can't understand what I'm saying in away from here the music isn't that impressive so you imagine away from here song in a language that you don't you know, that you don't necessarily understand. You go, well, this sounds like a doorbell <laughs> over a punk song. You know, it's it, it, it's not it's not like a lot of bands. You're not going to listen to it and mm. go, oh, wow, this is awesome. You might hear some energy in it, but, you know, there's, there's lots of really rubbish sort of punk bands where they've got loads of energy, mm. but there's no songs. <clears throat> and, uh, uh, you know, the enemy's music was never going to blow people who didn't understand the culture away because what made the enemy good was that people listened to we'll live and die in these towns or you're not alone and immediately felt like it spoke to them because they understood it because it was about the sort of place that they lived and you know there was this this feeling of of i guess someone's singing about something that resembles my life and if it doesn't resemble your life, you know, if imagine away from here, but instead of singing about wanting to get away from the, the, the nine to five grind and a company car and, and Richard and Judy, you know, imagine I'm singing about fucking, <laughs> know, plants. It's, it's, it's not going to have, it's not going to nah. be the songs that you love anymore. It's going to be, okay. Yeah. It's got that catchy two note chorus, but I don't really, yeah. I don't love it. You know what I mean, and that's what happened in Europe. So I, think, I, think, I think in America, it's, it's even to the it's that being able, like, so being able to relate. I think, yeah, um, that's that's sort of me, and I think there's just that invisible connection that a lot of music fans just have. Like, I can put myself in their shoes and pretend I'm them singing that song and just have a good time. Yeah, uh, it's the enemy wasn't rocket science. It just it struck a chord that needed striking at the time, you know, and, and that's, that's why it worked. But in terms of, you know, the first enemy song was three yep. notes over and over and over again. It, 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 it's some of the easiest music I've ever written, but the, the, the bit that worked about it, the bit that worked about it wasn't even deliberate. It was just, I sang about my life and my life was exactly the same as lots of other people's lives. And they were just as frustrated as me, just as disappointed and and upset by the world, and had the same angst, and mm. that's why it. That's why it so you obviously you you formed at your your energy stadiums, your festivals, and you also performed alongside some uh, pretty pretty big names in the in the band world. Was there any that stood out for you and you enjoyed the most? Obviously, you mentioned the Rolling Stones, you in the Oasis and Stereophonics and stuff like that. Kasabian. Another one. Yeah, we've. Um, I mean, all, all the ones you just mentioned, and we've 
we played Isle of Wight Festival the year that um, I'm pretty sure Sex Pistols <clears> played the same stage um, in whatever lineup it was, and Iggy Pop. Um, there's we've we've been around like we we've been around some really really amazing amazing bands, and I'm not. I'm not very, uh, mm. not a very sociable person, and so I, I never really did the whole, like you know, let's go, let's go hang around <laughs> yeah. and do loads of coke and 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 party with them. But I, I really appreciated being in the same vicinity as some brilliant musicians, and and that that was never lost on me. But I, I'm also not impressed by fame because I. I like I don't like it, having experienced a little bit of it myself, and so I never did the whole. Oh my yeah. god, it's so and so in that respect. You know, I, I kind of, you know, I, I really enjoyed meeting some people and and, and shaking their hands, and it being a, a validation in a in a way that you know you, you yeah. you've done all right here. You've made something worthwhile because you know because <laughs> it, Mick Jagger stood next to you or because. Knowles invited you on a tour or you know it, it's those things weren't lost on me I just I guess I, I maybe don't I don't um, indulge in them in the same ways that most people would or, or, or maybe you'd be expected to but yeah I mean we've we've been next to some yes. pretty amazing people you know I've been lucky to meet some phenomenally yeah. talented I mean, you say just that like you said that that confirmation of yeah that i've 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 obviously done something right because like you said you're standing next to Mitch Jagger, you're standing next to the gallagher brothers or what have you and it's just yeah but, you're... but i'm also i'm also aware at the time that i will be a fleeting moment in there yeah, yeah. there'll be a fleeting moment in mine you know it's i think a lot of people sort of inhale their own smoke and go <laughs> Right, that's it. I'm on tour with Oasis. Yeah. That means I'm cool as fuck now. It's like, well, I'm on this tour with Oasis because they need a support act, and you know we're we're playing this show with the Rolling Stones because probably because someone in their camp has said we only sell quite a lot of tickets at the moment. They're very popular and young. You should put them on. I'm not, you know, I, I don't. Yeah. I'm, I'm always a skeptic, you know, and I, I I'm not I'm not imagining that Mick Jagger's rolling around in his uh, in his Rolls Royce. <laughs> listening to techno dancephobic going oh we've got to get these on yeah that's not what's happening you know? if only yep. just just for, for the streets of cov that's that yeah <laughs> so what, what <laughs> yeah. would you say after you run off that kind of that whole festival arena conversation what what was the out of all the songs you've done what's the most enjoyable to perform in like a say one of those one one thousand two thousand size venues and that or is that is that a stupid question <laughs> It's changed. No, it's no, it's changed over the years. So it, it used to be, um, there was a time where you'd play aggro and you'd watch people just, you'd watch a crowd mm. tear itself apart, and you know wow. there's gigs where I've seen <laughs> blood, and it's like you know you'd you'd watch an entire at least the front half of the crowd was a mosh pit, and you know that. That's amazing, but over the years, as the as the crowds have matured, the, the the anthem has become "This song is about you," and it's the one that you know. There's videos of people in the tube after gigs 
with the entire yeah. tube station singing this song is about you and I it, it, it that's become the one that I think the fans wait for and it's the one that I wait for where you get the sort of the yeah. hairs on the back of your neck moment when they're all singing it and you've stopped and you at that moment I'm always stood on stage thinking I'm not doing anything <laughs> I don't even need to be here this this is a family now and it's a family get together and yeah. they're singing the family song and they're, they're the most beautiful moments to me they're the most enjoyable on stage that's I think, when that's, I think that's where the enemy of that kind of social connection you have like it's not for me personally um, I'm only 20 so <laughs> I'm if anything fairly new to like you know you and the enemy of that in terms of the past year or two but the past like the you're only one of the few bands and singers that I can say there's two, three, four songs that, like you said, make your hairs on your neck, hairs on the back of your neck stand up and actually want to be involved in it and just just let everything go. I think that's I think that's a special thing that not many artists have. I think. But I, me nor the enemy ever created that. It, the, the that was created by the fans and it's beyond my control i can i can work a crowd to an extent yeah. but when you see an enemy crowd do that or when you're in the crowd when that happens it's not me it's the crowd and it's kind of what I've, it's the unspoken thing that for years we we walk on stage every night saying i hope this is a good gig we're going to play it exactly the same as we played it last night you know with yeah. a reason we'll probably improvise a few bits but essentially we're doing the same thing the reason we're saying I hope this is a good gig is because it's 90% down to the crowd. And it's up to the crowd mm. whether it goes off. It's not up to me. And and that when you see that, when you see thousands of people let themselves all go in the same moment and everyone feels this togetherness. Like I've seen two lads in a crowd about <laughs> to have a fight and then just fucking hug each other instead. Yeah. And it's like, that's, a, that's amazing. And it's so far beyond my control that it's... It's what I hope for when I walk into a venue in the afternoon and we start setting up, but ultimately I'm powerless really to affect it. And it, it just is a thing that happens and that, that belongs to the fans, not me. And, and I think fans you can't you can't describe that that connection that you know, like you said, two people going to fight and be like, yeah, fuck it, let's talk. <laughs> so it's 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 indescribable, isn't it? What or how it does that to people. It's powerful, and I don't know what it is. <laughs> I wish it did, because I'd bottle it and sell it. But it, it's um, it's just this. I, I guess it's maybe a you know maybe a tribal spirit thing of when you get people all in the same place and they they all believe in the same thing, and it's just that in that moment what they believe in is mm. that song, and it, it you know it maybe it's that, but it yeah, it's unbelievable whatever it is, and and it you know it's um. It only happens. It only happens in Britain uh. and weirdly Japan. Nowhere else did it happen. And, um, <laughs> Japan's always that. Just, just there, and somehow they have a connection. But you know, you can only, I suppose you can only have that respect, I suppose, for a different country being able to take in, you know, what we see as greatness and them treating it how it should be treated, I suppose. I guess Japan, in a lot, I mean, in a lot of ways, going to Japan is like visiting Mars. But it, I guess, Japan's quite similar to the UK. It's a, a small island, <laughs> and they're, 
they're very depressed as a nation, yeah. and I think I think we are too. And it, you know, it's for for a lot of people, it's the recognition of that mm. of look, life's pretty shit sometimes, but then the you know the gigs are life's pretty shit. Let's all get together yeah. and sing about it, and that'll make us feel a bit better. And you know, I think maybe that's why it translated to Japan. You know, maybe America's more optimistic, <laughs> and maybe you probably just labelled each part of the world with a different emerging, can't you? And end up with the UK being yeah. <laughs> depressed, like you said. <laughs> yeah, we're just bitter bastards, basically. But I like the thing that we're, we're well, bitter nothing serious. Nothing's a big joke. That's what it is. So, leaving the enemy in 2016, did you have any plans for yourself um, of what you wanted to do? Did you want to stay musical or did you want to kind of steer away from that a bit? Yeah, so I, I think after everything that we'd been through, um, I, I th- you know, the, the good and the bad, I was kind of just um, just done with it, just done with music and the music industry. Um, I mean, I, I was obviously sort of done with the music industry, but I, I, to the extent where I kind of just thought, I don't even want to work in music anymore. And um, we, you know, me and my, my wife um, sort of started looking at moving to America and just going and doing something totally different over there. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were, you know, we were in the middle of of that process of sort of, we were, you know, we'd gone house hunting in America and, and, uh, we're, you know, trying to find what area we were going to live in and putting our house on the market and, and, uh, and we're ready to sort of get out and jump ship. Um, yeah. but then the, the, the 10 year anniversary of we'll live and die in these towns came around and, um, and two guys called Ben and Ian, um, who uh, they, they basically they'd put on the the enemy farewell tour through O2 Academy and um, and they said you know do you want to go play some acoustic shows and I I really didn't want the the ten year anniversary of We'll Live and Die in These Towns to pass without without everyone getting the opportunity to sort of recognise that and celebrate it and and obviously the the enemy wasn't going to happen so I couldn't. Mm-hmm. Just thought, well, we'll go and do it acoustic, and I didn't, I didn't know what the demand was going to be like, but um, the, the show sold out almost instantly, and we we added a couple more, and um, sort of had to deconstruct all the songs and make them work acoustically, and and then we we went out and played it, and for the first time in a long time, I actually enjoyed it, so mm. we. Uh, you know, I kind of decided, well, let's let's hold fire a sec. Let's not sort of um, disappear off to the states just yet. And, mm. and we we started, you know, rolling this this uh, acoustic show out um, all around, and ended up in uh, in Shepherd's Bush Empire. So uh, I think I think it was sold out. Um, you know, to a a room full of people going absolutely nuts for an acoustic show and <laughs> kind of not really, you know, having not really planned or expected it or, you know, I mean, people had worked very hard behind the scenes to get us there and, you know, credit to all of the crew and the musicians I was working with and Ben and Ian who masterminded the whole thing. Mm. Um, 
but it definitely wasn't somewhere that I'd expected to be. Um, and uh, and so yeah, it, that's sort of how I ended up touring solo. Um, you, you say about uh, you just fell out of love. Was, was there a particular part of music that you fell out of love? Um, or was it as a whole? Was it the the behind the scenes, the performing, or was it just a mixture? Uh, several things for several reasons, I think. So that the performing was becoming more and more difficult because I, I I've always kind of struggled with anxiety a bit, but I, it was masked in the early days by just heavy consumption of alcohol. Um, yeah. And I, on one of the final enemy tours, I'd become pretty ill um, with pancreatitis and the doctors had basically said, you need to stop drinking. Um, and going on stage sober is terrifying. Um, I, I, and it, it's still terrifying now, but um, as a sort of a, it was just a shock to the system um, back then of just, right, well, you're going to, you know, you're going to go on stage now and you haven't got your comfort blanket of, you know, having a bit of booze. Mm. Um, so that, that was terrifying. And, and to be honest, although I always loved it once I was actually on stage, that fear of getting on stage uh, to, to not have to experience that anymore at the end of the enemy was a, a welcome temporary re- relief. Um, but mainly it was just my whole disillusion with the industry. I had ruined music, even listening, you know, even just listening to the radio and not necessarily even radio on, you know, listening to good radio stations, hearing a song you like, but just knowing there would have been a load of politics behind it and that it, it probably was better and someone chopped it down, you know, someone at a record label who, couldn't actually write a record to save their life. They'd probably stuck their oar in and changed it. And there'd have been a load of politics to even get it on radio. And 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 just having seen behind the curtain and not liked what I'd seen, I, it it affected my ability to enjoy all music, even just as a music fan. Mm. So I was kind of just yeah, I was just over it, over it altogether. Just wanted a, a different world and a different environment, but. What Ben and Ian actually showed me is that that you didn't have to you didn't have to sort of immerse yourself in the music industry to still go out and tour. You can operate on the fringes, mm. and you can dip in and then get out. And you don't need to have a manager and an agent and a you know these huge companies, big record labels, and massive promotions companies. You can just you know you you can just sort of live a normal life and then a couple of times a year go and do a tour and you don't need a massive tour bus and you don't need a tour manager and and you know what opening the, the music venue in Cov helped me realize that as well because once I saw from the other side what was involved and what the venues were actually doing and what they were providing it enabled me to have a much more frank conversation with the venues and the people we were working with to just say Look, I don't need all the trimmings. I don't need all the fuss. We'll just come and do a gig, and it, it became a much more simple process. And I realised that about fifty percent of the people that had been involved in the enemy's touring probably didn't need to be involved. Um, mm. And we, you know, we we get some funny looks now because of how stripped back we we tour. And you'll get promoters, you know, you get an email from going, "Oh, what." 
what's the rider? It's like, just make sure we've got a couple of bottles of water. And, and you know, if, if everyone wants to get pissed, then if they want to spend their wages on booze in your bar, then yeah. I'd rather see that happen than as, you know, demand just loads of, you know, loads of stuff that we probably won't even consume. And mm. it, it, it just, having, having seen it the other side with the music venue, it can actually be the thing that makes a venue go, well, we won't book them again. Because I've been there, I won't name names, but I've had bands in at Empire where the demands are such that you just go, well, you're not worth it. You've, yeah. you've barely even sold enough tickets to cover the cost of your rider. Like, what <laughs> do you think you are? Uh, I just, I just kind of thought I never want to be that person. And, and there were, I mean, there were times where, you know, when the enemy were massive, when things like the rider would have just grown and grown and grown, and the touring party would have grown and grown and grown. And now we need a tour bus to fit everyone on, and and it was all so unnecessary when you look at it. It's, it's like we're we're three lads who used to rock up in a Ford Fiesta to a pub, absolutely smash it, <laughs> then buy our drinks at the bar and leave, and we were happy. Yeah. And it's just become this huge sort of corporate machine that's got all these mouths to feed. And it, but Ben and Ian showed me that it didn't have to be that way, and there was a more simple way of doing it. And and I, I just I started enjoying it again because of that. Mm. I mean, you say that you, like you said, you've seen those venues from the other side, and you then realised, appreciate that this is probably apart from making the actual music, this is the next best thing to do music is performing in front of people and you you realize that i don't need that i don't need that let's just make it as easy for everyone as possible as long as you still enjoy yourself and everyone else enjoys yourself there then that's that's the main thing yeah and and at the same time the something really really nice started to happen which was that the, the enemy gigs is they'd always been an event and i know you know i knew people look forward to them but once the enemy had split up and I think people thought, oh, what, we're not going to get together and sing these songs ever again. Um, myself included in this. Um, once we went and did that, that first acoustic tour, there was a real sense of appreciation again of, you know, how special it is that we all get to get in a room once or twice a year and, and sing these songs together. And this, this feeling started to develop of, of a, of a family because you you see the same faces you know in each town you go to and and it becomes just the real core fan base you know the people that were there sort of tagging along because they heard it on radio one but weren't real you know massive enemy fans that they, they fall away and what you're left with is this this hardcore fan base and between me and them there's this there's now this sort of sense of it's just our thing and we, you know, no one's really trying to sell anything or, or, you know, there's no huge corporate machine behind it trying to make millions. It's just, we know that we all love the day of the year that we get to get in a room in their town and sing those songs. And it, it became really, um, I, it, just a lot, it, it had a lot more meaning to it. Mm -hmm. I'm searching for the words to describe it, but it, it just, it became more emotional. Yeah. Um, you know, rather than just going through the process of right, well, we'll we'll pop to Sheffield and then we'll go, uh, you know, go to Birmingham and then Southampton because we've got this new record to sell. It's now sort of let's go catch up with our extended family in that town and in that town, and it it feels like a, a family get together. It's weird. And would you say 
that that one of those first gigs where you realised that everyone was just having a, having a good time and, and everything. Did, did that give you mixed emotions? Thinking, you know, obviously going from completely falling out of love with music and then realising that there's people still there that's, that absolutely love it and just want to enjoy themselves. Kind of. I mean, it made me it made me love those people and it made me feel really glad that I'd been able to to come and still interact with those people in that way with the same songs, but without all of the, the rubbish of the music industry machine around it. Mm. Um, but it it didn't generate any regret, you know, for for the band ending because simple fact of the matter is that the way that the band was set up to work with a label and a, a management company and an agent wasn't sustainable. So, you know, even if we had kept going, it would have just bankrupted everyone. Yeah. Um, and so it, it was kind of, I, I just felt really appreciative that I'd found a way for us to get together and, and sing the songs again and, and in a sustainable way where it was going to be repeatable. You know, mm. I just felt really lucky to be in that situation. Mm. Coming towards the end of that first acoustic tour, was did you have an idea then that this is something you wanted to do on an annual basis? And like you said, it, it was definitely sustainable and everyone gets what they want out of it. Yeah, and I think I said so on stage. You know, I think, I think as we were coming to the end of that run, I think I kind of said, we've got to do this again. And you could tell the sentiment was there. It, you know that that people wanted this to be regular and and you know not the end of the songs. You know the band was obviously no more and unsustainable for various reasons, but those songs over the years have grown to really mean something to people more than when I wrote them. You know they mean more to people now than they meant to me when I sort of conceived of them, which which is amazing really and and. So, yeah, even before the end of that tour, before we'd got into Shepherd's Bush Empire on the, you know, the second run of dates, I'd kind of decided, all right, we're going to keep doing this. And, you know, whether any new music ever comes or not, I still had no plans for new music at that point. Um, I just knew that at least once a year we would get together, you know, up and down the country as much as I, I could working with, with various promoters because it's still hard to to make the numbers add up sometimes in in certain parts of the country it's you know it's difficult to go and gig yeah um, particularly down south the south coast it's really hard to find um promoters that we can work with down there on the same terms that we work with promoters on the in the midlands and the north uh, presumably because there's just a bit less demand for for you know for me and, and those songs down there I, uh, I don't fully understand why but we we, we all we always try and 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 so we you know it, it's just a an ongoing thing now of of trying to just keep that record touring and obviously that's now evolving into right we'll keep that record touring but i'm also going to do some new stuff but mm. it, it, you know initially that the plan was just we keep going and playing we'll live and die in these towns and and from quite early on, the plan was we play that record and maybe every now and then I'll add in a song from one of the other records, but that record gets played in its entirety, pretty much in order every time we gig. And, you know, it works really well because that's 
that's what the fans want. And I think that's I think artists can get caught up with their own ego of of trying to play what they want. Yeah. But yeah. it became obvious to me that people love that record and so we need to go play that record. And um so that's that's sort of what we we've been doing for the last few years. You think it's like I said, artists get caught up in their own ego and you think it's also they're trying to constantly try and put new stuff out in order to stay relevant because their own music is obviously only going to get older and older and especially these days yeah in the pop music not a lot of them are those you know not a lot of them are songs that will never get old kind of thing whereas the, the entirety of the world living down these towns is something you can listen to in 10 times you think yeah that was you know a clash record whereas a lot of songs now you're like yeah, it was it was okay when it came out, but then it kind of died down after a year. Yeah, it well, even though it sounds certainly means a lot to a, a you know to a, a segment of people, um, myself included, obviously. But it it I mean, there's there's more people who obviously would listen to all even though these towns and go, well, eh, that just sounds like a record from the mid two thousands, and it never meant anything to them. So it, when you when you sort of think of it in context. It, you know that equally there'll be some rubbish sort of dance, you know I think is rubbish club tune now <laughs> that is the soundtrack to someone's first kiss or the soundtrack to them falling in love and it'll mean yeah. everything to them forever. So it it, it it's just that we'll live and die in these towns resonated with a, a bunch of people and it's now the common thread that ties them together. You know and and they get together in these places and come and sing it and it's. It, it's this. It's become this sort of familiar thing that brings us all together. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I think I think it's. Um, I think if it was rubbish, you know, if the if there were no songs on it, then it it would probably have appealed to a, a, a sufficiently smaller number that we wouldn't be able to go and do it. So. To, you know, it, some credit to the record. It, it it has held all of these people together for an awful long time now. You know, since two thousand and seven or six. It, you know, it, it it's been that common thread for an awful long time. So, I've I've grown to have a massive amount of respect for the record because it, it it's difficult for me as an artist because it's. You, you work, most artists are their own biggest critic, as well as sort of having problems of ego. They, they also have problems of insecurity, which is probably what fuels the, the ego. But from the minute that I finished We Live and Die in These Towns, I could give you, you know, I could listen to it now and I can give you 10 or 15 things that I'd change on it if I was mm. still in the studio making it and no one had heard it yet. But I've grown to sort of just respect it as it is and leave it alone and and accept it sounds the way it sounds and and to people who love it, that's perfect. And yeah. you know, I have to try and put the process of how we made it aside and and just respect it as a record that, that exists and then try and go out and do it justice live. Is that think like I was saying, you could go back and listen to it and point a few things that you changed. Is that because you've just generally had more experience and you've been involved in music obviously now over ten years and you've learned new things? Do you think that's why you could point out? 
Yeah, I mean, yeah, as a songwriter, I mean, that, that first record's got no, it's got no middle eights on it. I just didn't write middle eights. I didn't really understand what they were. Mm. And, uh, you know, and I listen to it now and I think, oh, wow, you know, like a middle eight, such a useful musical device. Why wasn't I using them? But I just didn't know what they were. And I listen to a lot of the sounds on there. Some of the panning's crazy. Like if you listen to it in headphones, yeah. stuff where it's, it's really hard panning and it's quite difficult to listen to. And so I've learned a lot, you know, with, with production, whereas I kind of, with a lot of most of the production on that first record, I left it to the producer and the engineer because I didn't know, you know, I've just written yeah. these songs. And and so there's there's a lot when I listen to it. Um, I listened to it in its entirety, actually, for the first time in years the other day um, and was really shocked because it's not as I'd remembered it. Um, you know, there's some... The, the guitars sound really thin and really, really overdriven. And, you know, I, I kind of, my memories of it are how we played it live as the enemy. And, you know, it sounded very big. But when mm. you listen to it on record compared to how it sounds live, it sounds quite small. Um, but I think you just have to take the whole thing, you know, the whole decade of touring it uh, and the and the record itself as one big thing and, and, and then it then it makes sense as to why it still resonates. Yeah. So obviously coming off that first acoustic tour, what was what was your plan then? Was was it straight back in the works for a second one to run for the following year or was did that kind of go up in the air for a bit and you did a couple of things? Uh well I ran off and got married. Um <laughs> so I, I kinda We'd done a lot of a lot of the, the acoustic touring, and there was a natural break in the schedule. Um, I'd been engaged to Kate since the last ever Enemy show. Um, asked her to marry me on on stage on the last ever Enemy show, um, and so we figured it was sort of about time we we uh, actually went and, and got married. Mm. And so we um, we swanned off to the south of France and and got married. And then I came back and about a week after started work on We'll Live and Die in These Towns, the musical, which had, had been in the pipeline since uh, before the enemy split up. There's a, a, a guy called Jeff Thompson, who's a, a BAFTA award winning writer, who had sort of told me his intentions that he was going to make We'll Live and Die in These Towns, the musical sort of asked for my blessing and I said, you know, you don't you don't need my blessing, but you've got it. Mm. Um and then I didn't hear anything from him for years and and then he sort of popped up while I was touring acoustically and said, Right, we've um we've done it. We've written the musical. Would you be musical director? And I had no idea what that entailed. Yeah. Um I was quite intimidated by it because it was something that I'd never done before. Um, and so I, I agreed, but said, if I'm rubbish at this, sack me before it's too late. <laughs> you know, sack me and get someone in who is good at it before you're stuck with me kind of, kind yeah. of thing. And um, and so I came back from France and the first thing um, for the, went straight to the to, to auditions, basically, where, where the cast were being auditioned. Um, 
and met these brilliantly talented people and 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 we started work on the musical um which was a a really eye opening experience and and really inspiring and spending every day with these incredibly talented actors and musicians mm. uh, and watching how quickly they 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 were learning and you know taking direction from Hamish he was a brilliant director and and seeing how clever and creative Jeff had been in weaving this story arc through, you know, weaving this narrative that, that, that wasn't obviously there when I wrote We Live and Die in These Towns, the, the album, weaving it across the entire record and making it all make sense. And it was a, a really inspiring time. And it was around that time that I started to start writing music again, um, largely just being inspired by the amazing people that i was working with did, did you did you have any doubts of how someone could turn a music album into a musical was that a question that you had I, I, yeah i mean it's one that i hadn't even considered so i kind of just thought how's he going to do this how's yeah. it going to make sense and and yeah he did it so well and he you know he i think he, he drew on some personal experiences but he used a a really classic um, story arc that that's you know been used in in stories for hundreds of years and and he just he adapted it so brilliantly that it was seamless it was like the songs had always been written um to to fit that that story and you know and it made it so easy for me you know my job was basically to take the songs and just adapt them to the scenes mm. um you know in terms of how people were performing them and playing them and 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 that was made so easy because of the strength of the the writing on Jeff's part. Um, and you know Jeff's a a really inspirational person. Aside, he just just being around him, he he's he's a force. He's a creative force, yeah. and he's got this amazing can-do attitude. You know, of this sort of attitude of nothing is impossible, and he's achieved so much in so many fields as well um you know in in film and uh, and theatre and he's got loads and loads of books to his name and he was a he was working in a factory in coventry and then working the the doors on nightclubs and just confronted his fears and and just decided that he was going to sort of shape his own destiny to an extent and do what he wanted and not be intimidated by how difficult it seemed. And that, that energy, as well as just the, you know, the writing and the creative people around that energy and that can do attitude of Jeff sort of made me think, well, I can write a record because this, this idea for Nigel was, was floating around, but it was so intimidating mm. that I was kind of shying away from it. And, you know, Jeff kind of just kept saying, you know, you've got to go towards the things that scare you in life. They're the things that, wait, you know, that's where you'll find the reward. And, you know, he's absolutely right, but it, it was just what I needed to hear at just the right time. You know, I was working with these great people. I've got this real positive voice of, of Jeff. I mean, a, a good place, sort of personally, having just done all the acoustic stuff and 
just got married and and it, it was just a really a really positive time and 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 so the sort of the, the bones of Nigel started being formed in that that environment really. Hmm. I was about to say that you've now known a bit more I haven't got the uh the opportunity to just to just share it somewhere some Christmas list. <laughs> but um understanding a bit more that I can see where kind of you got your your inspiration from that that story of following going through all the tracks and following a particular character but at the same time it's 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 music it's art at the same time yeah it was kind of um I, I, it all had to happen in the order that it happened because i you know, I'd watched one of the most inspiring things was watching people work on the musical, and it wasn't one conversation of, well, how do we get more people through the door, or how do we make more money on tickets? Mm-hmm. Every conversation was about the art of it. You know, it was about the the play. We, we just, you know, we were just trying to make it as good as it could be, and having just done the acoustic tours where it was just about how do we make the show as good as possible with the you know the minimal sort of sort of music industry rubbish surrounding it yeah you know if i hadn't done that tour and i'd done the musical first it probably wouldn't have happened right but it, it all just happened in the perfect order to make me go okay let's make an album let's make it all about the art it's you know it's not even about me that that record there were no conversations of, well, what should a Tom Clark solo record sound like? It, it was just, what should this record sound like? What, what sounds do I need to make to tell Nigel's story, having, having written the story? And, you know, and, and again, I wouldn't even have written the story if it wasn't for the fact that I worked with Jeff and had seen him write a story to music. And, you know, it was just doing the same thing the other way around. Yeah. Um, so it, you know, all of those experiences sort of came together to put me in this perfect position to to make Nigel and and then you know I spent about spent about a year writing it, which is you think the you know the the second enemy record was written in what a month or something. Mm. It, it you know it's it really shows that actually if you don't rush this stuff and you you take your time, it pays off and you, you end up with something that you're much happier with and, and you know, I'm much more proud to, to put my name on. Yeah. Because, you know, I've had time to obsess over the details. I've had time to listen and go, actually, that bit doesn't work. You know, that's rubbish. Let's change it. And it, it's, um, it, it was a, a much, I mean, it's the hardest I've ever worked and it's the most in-depth I've ever gone and the most critical I've ever been and, you know mentally exhausting working on Nigel but it it's worth it because I've got a record that I can listen to now and there's a lot of there's a lot of enemy stuff that I don't listen to because I can hear the compromise in it mm. you know that that second record I find it really difficult to listen to because I can just hear a big record label breathing down my neck and yeah. you know I, I just hear all of the compromises we have to make because we'd chosen to record it to tape and the stresses that that put us under. And, uh, you know, in the the third record, I can hear the budgetary constraints and, you know, and the fourth record, 
I listen to and I really like, but I remember the feeling that I had the whole way through making it of this isn't, you know, this isn't going to make it anywhere. There's not a place for guitars on radio anymore. Why, why are we even doing this? And, uh, you know, with this record, the, my only goal with it was that I'd be happy with it artistically. Commercially, it could be an absolute flop and I'd be fine with that. It just had to have real artistic integrity and then it would have achieved everything that I needed it to. And, and so it took a year of writing and then another year of recording to, um, to you know, to get to the point where I was happy to sort of go, okay, this is good enough to go out. And it was a long and laborious and difficult task, but so glad we, we did it that way. And going back to the, that's it's almost like the perfect truth about looking at something and saying, what, how can we make this as best as possible from your acoustic tour to the musical and then to the Chronicles of Nigel? You've looked at each of those things individually and thought, how can we make the tour the best? How can the musical be the best? And how can the Chronicles of Nigel be the best without bothering about how many bums on the seats and how many downloads, whatever, the streaming numbers and everything. It's, it's that perfect trio and kind of, I suppose that's bringing all your your, your passion and love for you know, the arts industry, I suppose, back, realising that you don't need to think about all these mouths you need to feed. You just want to just put your stamp on your work and if you're happy then that's that's really what what matters when you're doing it the, your way. Yeah, ultimately that's where I've I've now got to. And I, I mean, it's Jeff said something to me while we were making the musical that has run through. He said, "If you focus on the money, the art will suffer. Mm-hmm. But if you focus on the art, the money will come." And yeah. I I think that that as a because you you do as a creative person, you know. I mean, I could I could go now and write a jazz album entirely on xylophone, and it, it could be brilliant. But I, you know, I, I could love it, but it's not going to sell anything. No. Or if or if it does, the fans will buy it, and then they'll never buy another <laughs> another Tom Clark record again <laughs> in case it's that. So th- there's this balancing act that you have to do as a creative person, um, and it's difficult striking that balance sometimes because sometimes you really do want to push the envelope and and I worried at times that I had pushed the envelope too far with Nigel that it it was gonna you know you know that there's songs on there which is an accordion and uh, and a, a glockenspiel and there's a song on there that's just a string arrangement with a, a, an electric bass guitar on it and um I worried that maybe that was a bridge too far and people would reject it and say, you know, I don't, I don't get it. It's sort of up its own ass. But, it, it, you know, they were ultimately those decisions weren't taken for the sake of it. They weren't taken just to be arty. They were taken yeah. because, you know, it, I needed to use those sounds as a, a descriptive device where I can't paint the picture anymore with words without it being very clumsy i just need to put people in a space and you can do that with music um Mm. and so it it was more of a 
a sort of a stripping away of my ego and going, well, I should be acoustic guitar or electric guitar and my voice and it, it, uh, and and more sort of well, what instruments can I use to tell this bit of the story? Yeah, you know, not what would Tom Clark use. Forget Tom Clark exists. Just be the person that's painting this picture, and and you know where you end up is an accordion and a glockenspiel. <laughs> um, but it's quite, it, it's quite. You have to be quite brave to do that as well because I, if it, until it came out, I honestly expected a bunch of people to really hate that stuff and reject it. Mm. But I think, I think to be honest, a lot of it's. I think it's gone unnoticed. I don't think anyone's noticed that they're driving down the road in their car listening to an accordion and a glockenspiel because it's been done well enough that at yeah. that point in the story, it just does it's... paint a picture and, yeah, they don't think about what it is they're listening to because it sounds right at that point. Mm. And going back to that, that might be an idea for a charity album, Shoe and a Xylophone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when I've truly had enough of all this. <laughs> You'll, you'll know because I'll put the uh, the xylophone out on it. <laughs> uh, that, that's that's going to happen now. Um, so, <laughs> so, so obviously, from what I said, this this half where we are recording it, um, and the Chronicles scenario has been out for just over a week, isn't it? Yeah, I'm losing track of time. Um, yeah, I think it's about that. Yeah. So, obviously, you said you was you kind of you didn't know how people would react. What has it? has it been like and is there any kind of bits that you've enjoyed the most seeing on social media and everywhere else it's um it's been it's been really lovely first and foremost because everyone has been super positive about it which i I didn't really expect um i expected a bunch of people who just love that first enemy record to go what's this shit (laughs) um but no one's done that um it's also been quite actually before I move on, there is a, a Sunderland uh, sort of football club fans forum, uh, which someone drew my attention to, which is basically about seven people before it even came out saying it was shit. <laughs> <laughs> you haven't even heard it yet. Uh, that, that made me chuckle. Typical um, Sunderland fans, that is. I don't know. Sunderland's always a really good gig when we go up there. It's, I know it's some of our fastest selling tickets, but I just like that they'd reviewed it before it even came out. Um, it's probably just like Nigel. Don't like Nigel. That's, it's not. It's not, not, not my thing. That's probably what they're for. Yeah, I don't know what they thought, but I, I, they'd also in in the thread there was uh, a picture of me from about two thousand and seven, um, and uh, a bunch of them discussing the merits of and. I, I, I shit you not, discussing the merits of my hair and my lips. And I've got to say, <laughs> lads on that forum, if somehow, if one of your mates has heard this podcast and and, and passed this on to you, if you're looking at photos of a man from a, over a decade ago and, and you're drawn to his hair and his lips, I think, and it's fine, it's it's 2020, but I think you need to ask some serious questions about your own sexuality. <laughs> I shouldn't have. Because <laughs> I, I can't say uh, I look at other men and, and I'm, draw, I'm drawn to sort of the bulbousness of their lips. <laughs> it's not it's, it's not my natural state, but uh, there's nothing wrong with it. But I just think I think you should you should um, 
just uh, look look inward a little bit and, uh... and stop looking at my lips. But um, but yeah. So that 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 aside, um, the releasing of the record was it was really nice because all the comments were super positive. Um, but also, I felt this massive sort of profound sense of loss because Nigel's been sort of my mate and you know my little project for the last two years mm. and overnight it became everyone else's mate i remember and, seeing a tweet about you saying about that actually yeah it's, it's such a weird feeling i mean i've had it before with records where you know i make the record and the songs mean a bunch to me and then you hand it over and they mean something to someone else but this one because it was a character it it genuinely felt like i'd lost someone because there's a bunch of people now hanging out with Nigel. And, you know, Nigel's only really been hanging out with me and the people who were making the record for the last two years. And, it, it, you know, now everyone, you know, everyone who's listened to it has got an opinion on Nigel. And, you know, some people feel sorry for him and others feel that he's a complete ass, And I, I kind of feel a mix of both. But it, it sort of made him real. But he, I also sort of lost him from my, my world a little bit. It was weird. Mm-hmm. And with, with the the album being obviously like a a story type thing, and I'm guessing is is in a form that you have to listen to track one straight through to how many tracks on it now, but straight through to the last track in order in order to understand everything. Um, yeah, if if you want the story, then yeah, you you've got to listen to it chronologically. And do you think um, do you think that now people just think there is. Have you realised that maybe the songs in there that people could just pick out randomly and, and listen and you, you, or is it more you just wouldn't understand it? I'd like to think, and we did, there was a bit of a focus on this um, while we were making the record. I'd like to think that there's a bunch of tracks that you can pull out and just listen to in isolation and it, it, it'll be an enjoyable experience. Hmm. Um but really, the record is designed to be listened to in order um, with an understanding of who the characters are, Nigel and his Mrs. Shelley and Bob and Sue, which is Nigel's mum and dad. Um, you know, because it, you can listen to a track on its own and that track will tell a bit of a story. Yeah. But, but you know, when you, you link that all in, it, it becomes this this big piece of work um, with hopefully a, a compelling story that people find relatable. Mm. Is there, judging by social media, do you think there's, there's, uh, there's any favourites? So I've seen quite a few people say, is it leave the light on? She leaves? I can't remember. Uh, she, yeah, she don't leave the lights on. She don't leave the lights It's track two. It's a song about uh, Nigel's mum and dad. Mm. Um, yeah, people... <laughs> People really seem to warm to that one. It, it's interesting because it's not. It, it, there's some, you know, some louder sort of guitar ones with drums, and and that one's a really stripped back, just a piano and a cello and mm. and and some strings, and it, it's not the one I expected people to uh, to, to love. Um, but the the other one is RSVP, which is the one I did expect people to to sort of gravitate towards because it's probably closer to the enemy stuff in terms of it's you know structured yeah. in a more predictable way and and it's you know it's quite upbeat um 
but yeah, the, I've seen I've seen quite a mix. But yeah, that one, that one, and RSVP are definitely the uh, the front runners in terms of feedback on social media so far. Mm, I can't wait to get my digital digital hands on it and have a have a just a listen. Because I think I'm I'm at the stage now where I'm appreciating music more for actual music and not just something you can bob your head to. Um, so I, when I when I do get my hands on it, I will, I will sit down and just go from track one to the end and you know make my own mind up. I think, I think if it's go back, probably just comes with age. But going back three, even two, three years ago, I'd, I'd listen to a track and now nah, never listen to it again. Whereas now you think you kind of you listen to it again, and think oh, hang on, there's something here, and then you go further and further and deeper and deeper, and you realise that there's much more to this track than just you know what it seems on the surface, kind of thing. So I'm uh, I'm definitely looking forward to to listening to it in its entirety. I've I've done that with so many bands, you know, uh, so many bands that I've listened to initially and gone, nah, I don't like it, and then mm-hmm. revisited it and gone, oh wow, this is actually brilliant. I, I mean, massive bands as well, The Smiths. I just uh-huh. at the first time I listened to The Smiths, I was just like, what is this guy's voice? This is <laughs> this is unlistenable. I can't. I can't get my head around it. And then I think sometimes it's the environment you hear music in as well. You know, if it's, if it's the wrong environment, it can just make you hate it. But yeah. if it's the, the right environment, it can make you enjoy something that you otherwise wouldn't have enjoyed. And the, the big one for me was um, the divine comedy. So Gaz, who was the creative, he's my best mate. And he was the creative consultant on Chronicles and Nigel had, had told me for years listen to the divine comedy it's brilliant and i'd always gone nah. and i'd i'd listen to like a little bit of it um and be like oh what i don't get it and then one day um it just caught me at the right time i listened to a track called our mutual friend um and it nearly made me cry it just it made the hairs on the back of my neck stand up i'm just it just punched me in the gut mm. and I, I was like wow okay and then from that you know I went and found that record and explored that record a bit and that you know I, I discounted the Divine Comedy so many times and I would honestly say if there's one artist um, that influenced Nigel more than any other one artist or one record it's the Divine Comedy and that Absent Friends record and it's become one of my absolute favourites. And the amount of times I've written it off is hilarious. <laughs> I'll have to I'll give that a, give that a nose, actually, now you say it. Cause, uh, it's something, and going back to what you were saying and about kind of listening to think of it nah, think you, you, you probably weren't like this after saying you don't like club music <laughs> earlier. But that, that, was, that was me, because I'm alongside like the stuff you kind of create and whatever, I'm like a big house music fan. So... Um, like a couple of years ago, I was like, this, this, some stuff's all right, blah, blah, blah. But now I'm just completely just buried in it. <laughs> but you know what? So the same for me, but the other way around. So when we opened the music venue in Cobb, obviously a big part of it was club nights. Yeah. And there are songs that I'd heard on the radio where I've just gone, oh, this is drivel. <laughs> where, again, environment, you, you put it, in the right room yeah. with a load of people all coming together with this energy and all of a sudden it makes sense. And, you know, 
a song that sounds rubbish when you just sat at some traffic lights sounds amazing. And and then the next time you hear it when you sat at some traffic lights, it evokes those same feelings and it's amazing. Yeah, that... So 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 much of its environment and where and how you hear it. Mm. It's, it's what you're doing. Yeah. Like I said, if you're sat what you relate it to. Yeah, and if if you if you're if you're sat at some traffic lights on the way home in a bit of a mood then you're not, you're not really going to take much to what you're hearing on the radio. Whereas if you're in a, a nightclub or a, a bar where, you know, you're having a few drinks or you're just just jigging with your friends, then that, if you like that song, that's going to come out in you and how you react because you're in a good mood and you're in the right environment to show that appreciation and, and love for a particular track, I suppose. Yeah. Talking about club music as well as an incidental side note, um, the enemy wouldn't have existed without dance music because we, I mean, there's two specific instances um, that I can point to. So you're not alone. Um, I mean, this is old school club music, um, but it's the, the stuff that Pete Tong was playing when I was sort of listening to dance anthems on radio one and taping it when I was a, a teenager. Yeah. Um, so you're not alone is actually, the lyric You're Not Alone was inspired by a dance track by an artist called Olive, um, which was a, a big track around the year sort of 2000, I think, sometime around then. Um, but more obviously, the first ever enemy song written was Technodancephobic. Oh, yeah. And if you go and find a dance track called It's Time to Burn by an artist called Storm, um, it's the same three notes repeated over and over and over again. Mm. Um, and it's, it was basically born out of my love of dance music at that time around the, the sort of the turn of the millennium. Yeah. But, but when we, when me and Liam stopped playing blues and we sort of said, you know, let's make some slightly more commercial stuff. That was my go-to was well, the, the last commercial stuff that I really enjoyed was dance music around sort of around the, the time of the millennium. And so that's where we started. Was that dance track? It's time to burn. Okay, I think I'm gonna, I'm gonna go to that and see. I probably will notice it straight. Now you've said it, because I think is it one of those things where, if you didn't say that and I listened to those tracks one after the other, I'd be like, you wouldn't, you wouldn't pick it up. But now you have said it, and I'm listening a bit more intently. I think I might pick it up. Maybe. I mean, it's, it is literally the same three notes the whole way through, and so you can just sing Technodancephobic over It's Time to Burn. It's kind of... I, I always loved just the way the way dance music could just build and build all this... loads and loads and loads and loads of tension. And that first Enemy track was all about trying to do that. Mm. You know, and it, it does sort of just... I mean... I don't know if we achieved it on record, but certainly live, it just starts off with these three notes as a little thing and gets bigger and bigger and bigger until it just explodes. Mm-hmm. Just to imagine, I don't know if this happened since we last spoke or it happened before we spoke for the first time, but there was a, is it the band The Strangles? Is that what they're called? Stranglers. Stranglers. I think someone was, one of the lead singers or something that was on, I think it was on ITV in the morning. And he, he just ripped into house music, just absolutely ripped into it. Uh, really? I think I'm sure, I might be getting, I'm sure that's the name of the band. Um, and he, he just said, he just went, house music is just terrible. There's no, 
There's no creative thought. There's no there's this, there's no that. Basically, anything bad you could say about a particular genre of music, he, <laughs> he said it on live TV. And I think I think the, the presenter at the time actually just kind of said, yeah, that's okay. Well, that's off. That's, just, just cut him off. I, I, I might be wrong who it was, but I'm sure it was on those lines. But it's just, I suppose it's one of those things where obviously. I mean, some of it probably is, but yeah. any genre of music you can say that for. You know, if you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. If you, you look at indie, when when indie was massive and indie was basically the mainstream, most of it was rubbish. You, you know, if you think about it in terms of every artist would put out an album, a lot of that album would be filler. They'd maybe have one or two singles on there. Well, that tells you that most of the album wasn't as good as the singles. And then you question, well, was that was that artist at the pinnacle of it? No, they were sort of, you know, somewhere down the list of 15th best indie band because there were so many at the time. Yeah. And so... Any time a genre of music is is going through uh, a sort of a it, you know being in fashion, a lot of it gets made, and therefore a lot of it is rubbish. Mm. But it doesn't mean that you know that you can you can paint everything that's made within that genre with the same brush. You know you have to explore it, but that's part of the fun of music. I think is yeah, definitely. You know you get into a genre and then you explore it and a lot of it's rubbish, but you find some real gems and they're the ones you, you hang on to. It's falling deep into those playlists and it on Spotify or Apple or any other place you listen to music where you, you start with one song and you go and go and before you know it, you're in like a, your fourth playlist and you're just looking at some song that's got, you know, a couple of thousand listens, but it's, it's amazing. Yeah. I think a, a more, intelligent sort of um, take on house music nowadays would be I think my critique of it would be the same as a lot of genres which is it's morphed into so I think rap drum and bass and lots of the subgenres of dance music have all now morphed into this one commercial sound mm-hmm. where you can listen to a house track or, or a, a track from an artist who would formerly have made classic house music that would have probably fit into you know a certain subgenre of house music and you can then listen to a drum and bass track or, or a rap or r&b track for that matter or pop and it will sound broadly the same as that because mm-hmm. there's now been this focus of just how do we find that radio sound um and i think it's eroded a lot of the, the subgenres of of electronic music um, in particular, and, and dance. You know, I remember I remember being in Scotland in about 2009 mm. um, and uh, being, in, uh, being in a place called Cabaret Volataire. We'd been, we'd been taken there by some locals um, and I, it, it was all, it was, a, it was a dance night and I remember the DJ mixing from one song to another and to me, it sounded broadly the same because I wasn't deep into that genre. You know, I hadn't done the exploration. Yeah. And I remember one of the girls we were just going, oh, this is rubbish now. And they're going, why? It's, it's broadly the same. And they've been like, no, no, this is... And then some different subgenre of house that, that she didn't like. And I was like, oh, right, it's interesting. But, you know, there are all these... It, it used to be such a sort of a cliquey sort of world. Yeah. Um, and now it, 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 a lot of it is just homogenized just very radio friendly but to say that an entire genre is rubbish is quite narrow-minded in my opinion <laughs> yeah it's just, um, i'm uh, I, I blame my mom 
solely for me becoming a house music junkie and a an absolute nutcase when on a night out. Um, that's that's all, that's all on my mum's at mum's feet. That is. <laughs> <laughs> so obviously coming now, you you finally released it after it's been out for ten days or so, and um, since we last spoke. Nothing in the world's really changed. Um, we're still kind of in limbo. Um, as since then, have any uh, ideas or plans changed for the next, well, for twenty twenty one and beyond, or have you still got the same, same ideas? Well, I mean, everything's still illegal, and we're in about tier fifty seven <laughs> now, I think. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we can't. We can't do any gigs. Um, so uh, the tour had been postponed several times to January and we're going to, obviously, we're, we're going to have to postpone it again. Mm. Um, I, I'm generally being guided by the fans on this as well. And, and if it, mainly on Twitter, I'm kind of asking people, what do you want? Do you want us to reschedule? Do you want us to do the show socially distanced? Do you want us to just refund it? Um, and the the current thought amongst the fans on Twitter seems to be just keep rescheduling it and play it as soon as it's legal to play a proper gig, mm. um, which which is my preference as well. You know, I'd rather not do the, the shows socially distanced because I think you know the, the atmosphere is a massive part of why we all get together, and and I would rather get together once this is all over and celebrate the fact that it's all over than. I think get in a room and do it under these strict rules and regulations that, you know, they they could, they could really sort of change um, the way it feels. So I'm, I'm gutted that that it's going to sort of have to get pushed back again, but at the same time, I'm excited for it to, um, you know, to eventually happen and it will be this amazing release of at last we can do this. And, you know, I think everyone will appreciate more how special it is to be able to do it um, once we get there. Um, in terms of recording more new music, um, I'm going to take Christmas and New Year off because um, I'm a little bit burned out on, uh, on on you know having just made Nigel. Mm. But I've got two two records which are about 70% written and um, almost ready to go into the studio. One is a little side project, um, which I don't even know if we'll put it out under my name or if we'll put it out under a band name, but it's, it's just sort of 90s nostalgia. It's, um, it's really familiar sounding to anyone that was into that genre at the time or has got into it. You know, hopefully you can just put these songs on and it'll, take you to that sort of warm comfortable place yeah um it's not too challenging you know nigel's quite challenging when you listen to it but this isn't this just sort of puts his arm around you and goes let's just chill out it's all right um so that's one of the records um and then the other one is another concept record um which is a, a bizarre story about aliens invading Felixstowe. Um, okay. And uh, <laughs> uh, um, kind of sort of 
rather than us go into war with them as you you know in most sort of sci-fi novels or war of the worlds type sort of alien stories there's always a huge war between humans and aliens and you know hopefully humans defeat them in this there is no war it's a sort of a a commentary on uh, a sort of a metaphorical commentary on multiculturalism and the people on either side of the debate, but the, the most extreme worst people on either side of the debate. So, you know, you just, you, you're abject sort of racist rejectionists. Mm. Um, and then you, you real sort of like soft governmental, let's set up a department for inclusion. Um, but fill it with red tape and hypocrisy and, and and so it, it it's a sort of a commentary on that where instead of going to war with the aliens, we set up a bunch of government departments, try and include them, um, and and try and sort of integrate them. Um, but uh, the story goes in weird places. Aliens become obsessed with pies, um, okay. start hoarding all the pies, and <laughs> I, I I won't ruin all the all of the story, but it. I, I will ruin the end because um, it's, it's it's actually I think quite nice starting this story knowing where it ends. Yeah. It, it ends with aliens just destroying humanity in the world. Okay. <laughs> Decided we're not worth keeping. Um, when you said it's going to end nice, I thought you were going to say everyone's going to be equal and it was going to be the uh, the perfect world. But well, I might as well out of the back. In a, in, in a sense, <laughs> aliens destroying it kind of is the perfect world. <laughs> that, that, that reminds me of, I don't know if you've ever watched a film called the, um, District 9. I've uh, heard of it, but I've not watched it. It's similar to that in a way that uh, the aliens uh, are seen as, because it's based on the apartheid in South Africa. So it's right. kind of seen as the aliens are the black people. And then the government and everyone else is the white people, and it just kind of battles with that, you know, that that the whole segregation and the the differences between people and equality and everything. It and then I've been a couple of years since I watched it, but that's, it just reminded me that when you was going through it, it's that sounds similar. Yeah, it's the fear of difference, isn't it? And it's it's why I, I used the alien invasion to draw the. Because it, it's quite obvious. Mm. If you say, you know, if if I said to you, oh, aliens have just landed in Felixstowe, you would naturally be scared because there's a, a huge unknown. Well, what? Why? Why are why are aliens here? They what? They are they going to have? Are they going to want different things to us? Are they going to yeah. want to destroy us? But it, but it it makes you realise that a lot of the multiculturalism debate is just people's fear of difference. Yeah. Um. You know, and and once you get past that fear, actually, it's quite, um, you know, difference is interesting. Mm. It, it it's the it, it, if there was no difference, there would be no interest in in, in anything because you'd you'd know everything would just be a foregone conclusion. You know, yeah. your view on something, I I wouldn't need to ask because I'd know what it was because it'd be the same as mine. And where, where's the interest in that? Um. But it's 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 kind of this record is the opposite to Nigel because it's quite a, although there's that serious sort of metaphorical subtext to it, it's actually a really fun 
record and and hopefully quite a funny one because Nigel was so serious to make and so yeah. so much hard work. We just needed the antidote to it, which you know, which was kind of can we can we have a bit of light heartedness and and aliens hoarding pies seemed uh, <laughs> seemed like that. Who who wouldn't hoard pies when they came? That's that's, that's what I'd say. Yeah, well, it's the bit. It's the bit of you. Pies are the bit of human culture that initially make them decide to spare us. So they've actually <laughs> they've actually come here just to take our oceans because they they need water. And yeah. they get here and we're like, oh, hold on, guys, before you take our oceans, have a look <laughs> around. We're worth saving. Leave us some ocean. And they they basically they end up in pubs because that's where you go. And. <laughs> And they end up eating pies and just going, this is ama- this thing that these humans have created is amazing. Just meat in pastry with gravy. And they, so they spend a lot of the album trying to reverse engineer pies. But, <laughs> but the thing is, is they, they, they struggle with the concept of killing something just to eat it. So they can't reverse engineer the pies and make them taste the way that the human-made pies are. And so they just start hoarding all the human pies and obviously then tensions rise because no one can get a good pie. Um, <laughs> so, <course. laughs> yeah. so it's, it's just quite a fun record. Is that, is that the Chronicles of Pies? No. <laughs> it's called, uh, the record's going to be called The Department for Intergalactic Affairs. Okay, very different to what I'm at, yeah. So you, you, hearing that, you wouldn't think it's going gonna, it's gonna to feature some pie talk. That's, uh, that's, gonna, that's, that's, that's interesting. I'm looking forward to that. So, Obviously now, uh, yeah, we were we was coming coming up to Christmas, and you you, you like you said you're going to take Christmas and news off, which I think is it's it's deserved on on your behalf. You know, well, most people and, and kind of feel sorry for the people that uh, can't this year, like in terms of having a proper Christmas. I don't know if have you are you are you one of the lucky ones like myself who's still in tier three slash two or. Uh, I think we're in three, um, but I mean we're we're not we're not really allowed to do anything. No. So there'll, there'll be no there'll be no Christmas celebrations. But I'm quite a Scrooge anyway when it comes to Christmas. Like we never have a like we never have a tree or do decorations. Do you not? No, not really. I, and we <laughs> we go around to sort of see family, um, but I kind of go around to see my family, and I'm like, you, you're just my family on a different day. <laughs> Like you're my family, but for some reason there's a tree inside the house. Like it, it, <laughs> I, I kind of I, I struggle to uh, to find the joy in Christmas. So like yesterday you saw me, you said hello. Today you're all screaming again. Hello, how are you? And asking. You've put some things inside some brightly coloured paper and <laughs> sellotaped it up. We're, Why? We're, we're, ba- we're battling for a. <laughs> A small pair of nail clippers. What? What? In a in a what's it? A cracker. So just. Oh wow! It's uh, see, I'm I'm struggling. I'm struggling to get the enjoyment out of Christmas because I see Christmas as a. I'm definitely not a Scrooge, but I see Christmas as like a a week long thing or two weeks. To to get excited about the one day, um, it's like oh, kind of a bit deflating for me, but. So it's just just the ones. Hopefully, it's just the ones anyway. And I think we were, I probably said this last time we recorded, but all this will be gone. Hopefully, at some point in twenty twenty one, and 
we'll be able to get back to what we love doing and that's just socialising like normal human beings really and uh, and like you said going to the gigs and and everything else and that first gig back whether it's or whatever gig it is will be will be something I think yeah I, I, I really can't wait I'm gonna the first time that we you know we walk on stage I, all the all the bits that I hate the sitting on a motorway in traffic and then the loading the gear in and I, I I'm going to enjoy that so yeah. much. <laughs> like checking into that first travel lodge is going to be brilliant. <laughs> it's just just going in there. Just you can probably even go there an hour early just to. Yeah, just massive to... smile on my face. <laughs> <laughs> Say hello to the same the same member of staff. So, haven't seen you in a while. It's good to be back, kind of thing. Yeah. Do you know, the, there was um, there was a member of staff in a, I think it was a Premier Inn, not a travel lodge, uh, somewhere in London. We stayed there so often. Mm. We were just, we were on first name terms with him and like knew about his, he had a, a, a son. And it, do you know what? It, it came about because Warner Brothers, uh, in the early days of the enemy, appointed as a stylist and, T- turned up to where we were staying, which was this travel lodge or premier inn. Uh, this stylist did with a box full of really, really trendy clothes that I'm sure some trendy band would have loved, but we yeah. just wore Adidas. <laughs> and w- we got these clothes out. I-, I remember Liam taking one t shirt out in particular and saying, I can see through this. <laughs> like, what's the point of a t shirt that you can see through? And anyway, they, they left this box of clothes and we sort of went. To reception and said, "Do you know anyone our size who likes trendy clothes?" And the girl's <laughs> like, "Yeah, my son loves them." And we're like, "Right, come and get this box of fucking ridiculous clothes that we hate." And his name was Herman, and um, we ended up just being friends with him. And he he used to sort of, you know, he, he used to just always let it sort of uh, let it slide a bit when we'd roll in really late, really pissed, being noisy, and and. Uh, after years of staying there, when uh, when the record, I don't know if it was when it first went gold or when it went platinum, mm. but they they ask you, you know, how many gold discs do you need printed up and what names do you want on them? And uh, we got one made up for him and <laughs> dropped it off there when we, when we next stayed there. That's class, that is. He's just a really cool guy. I felt a part of a, a part of the journey. He was the premier ring guy. That's... That's that's what you want. That's 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 a that's a heartwarming kind of thing. Yeah, it was vital. It was vital though to us, you know, not being chucked out <laughs> into the street and having nowhere to stay. <laughs> we came in just being unruly. That that would be something. Just someone just driving down the street is like a fan of yours and just just seeing all three years just just all crossed on along along a street curb or something just outside the Premier Inn. We have been. Uh, we have been almost ejected from a few hotels um, in the very early days. Just, you know, what happens when you give 18-year-olds loads of, uh, loads of, or 20-year-olds, loads of free booze and then a, an entire sort of hotel to run riot in and yeah. no reason to get up in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to happen. It's just it's natural and it's human. It's, yeah, it's... You, you've, you've got to test the limits, I think, of what society will tolerate. <laughs> So yeah, I think we've um, I think we've covered uh, everything that we uh, we plan to cover. Um, thank you for coming on again to to 
finish the, the recording. Um, enjoyed uh, talking about the Conde Canarjo and everything else. I could probably go on for ages, but yeah, that's probably not a great idea. So, um, yeah, and if, if anyone wants to find or buy uh, the Chronicles and Nigel, where, where can they where can they go? It is exclusively on TomClarkMusic.com, where you can buy a digital or a CD. All the vinyls have sold out, so that's your lot is digital or CD. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll uh, I'll send you a, a download code for it after this, so you can have a listen. That's great. I appreciate um, that. But for for everyone else, TomClarkMusic.com. That's great. So, yeah, thank you for coming on and talking this. Hope everyone has a, or had a very good Christmas, should I say. And uh, let's, let's just, 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 just go for 2021 and hope that will be a, a good or better year than 2020. So thank you, Tom, for coming on. Thank you to people for listening. And I'll see you in 2021.